Hello and welcome to the Paper to Podium podcast. I'm Charlie Webster, broadcaster and journalist and keen athlete. And I'm joined by my co-host, Professor James Morton. This is our very first episode and it's been brought to you by Science in Sport. Science in Sport is the world's leading sports nutrition brand that is fueled by science and trusted by athletes. And for that very reason, they've decided to create this podcast to share with you how to fuel, train and get the results the way that your favorite sportsmen and women do. If you've not checked out our trailer yet, every two weeks, James and I are going to be talking to an athlete and an expert in sports science and nutrition. Now, James has picked our first topic, which is all about weight loss and weight management. James, why did you want us to start with this one? <laughs> well, that's a good question, Charlie, but I think it's it's very easy, actually. Out of all of the topics in sport nutrition, weight management seems to dominate athletes' conversations, but it's also a topic where they make a lot of mistakes and so what I really wanted to do in this episode is, is try and highlight some of the mistakes that some of the athletes have made that we're going to speak to um, and try and share some lessons for our listeners to help them on their weight management journey. Yeah, I think it's something that we can all relate to, really. So we're going to have a chat with Professor Steve Peters, who is the author of The Chimp Paradox. It's a book about mind management and Tour de France winner Geraint Thomas and Dr. Trent Stellingworth, who's a leading sports scientist. But we're going to start with Steve James. And it's interesting because you've worked a lot with him, I know personally and in your career. And I actually had a session with him uh, many years ago, and it's something that I've always took on board, especially how he simplifies mindset in a way by using chimp? Yes. Well, I, I worked with Steve professionally back at Liverpool Football Club many years ago. Um, and then I worked with him a lot more closely during my time at Team Sky. But I also worked with him personally as well. Um, and it's fair to say that Steve Steve had a tremendous impact on me in terms of how I manage myself, but also how I work with athletes. Now, in the context of weight management, I'm a big believer that you've got to manage your mind first before you try and think about managing your weight. So I think Steve will share some really simple lessons with his model of mind management that will hopefully help our listeners to then manage their own minds, but more importantly, manage their own weight, if you like. Yeah, I agree completely. It's all about mindset. I'm really interested to see what he's going to say. So let's bring Steve in. Steve is a consultant psychiatrist who specializes in the functioning of the human mind. He's worked with some of the world's most high-profile athletes to understand and manage their emotions, thinking, and behavior. He holds degrees and postgraduate qualifications in medicine, mathematics, education, medical education, sports medicine, and psychiatry. Steve, I hope I've got them all. And he's the author of the personal development book, The Chimp Paradox, which has sold over a million copies. Welcome, Steve. We're so grateful to have you. Thank you very much. Privileged to be here. Steve, I know that you and James have both worked together in your professional life and James a little bit in your personal life too. And Steve, over the years, I've interviewed so many different athletes that have brought your name up and the term the chimp. Now, I think maybe if you could talk us through what the chimp paradox is and that inner chimp, because so many of these athletes I spoke to have testified part of their success to the work that you've done. Okay, I'll try, I'll try and keep it simple. It all began in the 90s where I'm a university lecturer at Sheffield and my discipline office is psychiatry. So I'm teaching medical students the future doctors. And I'm particularly keen that they understand the neuroscience of the mind because that's a machine we all have. And if they can understand that, they can work with their patients more effectively. So in order to do that and teach the neuroscience, which is very complex, I tried to give an access model. So I looked at the brain and in a nutshell, we found that chimpanzees and humans think and, and their functioning of the brain is very, very similar with one particular circuitry system. 
So this circuitry system based around the orbital frontal cortex we share with chimpanzees. The other hominids, great apes, it doesn't actually function the same way. So just for as a way of access, I called it the inner chimp. Because when we use that system, we operate very similar to chimpanzees. So it's a primitive system, but a very effective one to keep us safe, to perpetuate the species, to actually make decisions for us. But it's very much an unconscious thing that happens. Our minds run away with us. And we see this in people I work with. So that was the inner chimp. Then I said, look, there's an alternative system, which is conscious awareness, where we do make decisions and we work much more with facts and information and logic. So I called that the human. And finally, in the center, which is the most important part, is this very much a computer system, which operates by storing information, then feeding it back to advise the human and chimp systems when they're coming to make decisions. So that was really complex. So eventually you end up almost sock puppets. So there's you, you're sharing your brain with a chimpanzee, and there's a computer for your access and help to manage this chimp. Steve, how do you identify what the chimp is? Okay, it's not easy. I have one golden uh, question you can ask. And, and that is, whenever you're experiencing emotion, thinking, or behavior, ask yourself, is, do I want this? If the answer is no, then you know you're being hijacked. That's almost inevitable. So for example, do I want to feel like this? Anxiety or whatever. Do I want to be beating myself up? Do I want to lack confidence? If the answer is no, then your chimp is hijacking you. You're not being the person that you are. So in terms of beating yourself up, because that's very, very common, I think, across the board. So if I'm beating myself up, I can say, oh, hang on a second. That's, that's not me. That's the chimp doing that to me. Yes. And it's not, this isn't a model of excuse. It's a model of responsibility. It's saying, right, your chimp's doing this. What are you going to do about it? Because now we're moving to you and saying, OK, we know what the chimp's doing. How are you going to stop the chimp doing this and why is it doing it? So we're going to have to work with the chimp to, so it doesn't happen again. And, and if you think, why would it want to say that? If you think, let's say we'll take a sports person, an Olympian, and they're about to compete in the Olympic finals, so they're not absolutely brilliantly. That primitive brain is not going to be confident normally. Everyone's unique, so I can't predict. I've got to ask them what's happening. Generally, they'll say they get so nervous, so anxious, because what that brain is saying is, why are we putting ourselves and our neck on the line uh, so that we could potentially die here. And your human is saying, it's just a sport. I'm just going to do whatever I do. It's fun. It's entertaining. And if I don't win, it's not the end of the world. So you have two opposing thinking systems in your brain at that point. One of them you want to think. One of them you don't want to think. Yeah, I can relate to that. Can you, James? <laughs> I definitely have that voice, yeah. that chimp, quite loud in my head. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think what I would say right from the outset is, for me personally, sports science is it's like a coaching profession, and I'm there to try and help athletes get better. And Steve's model resonated with me a lot because it helped me understand myself, but it then also helped me recognize the athletes that I was working with. And so when I was working with the athletes, was I talking to the chimp? Was I talking to their human? What's going on inside their computer? Why do they perceive the world the way they perceive it? And once I really bought into Steve's model, it, without doubt, I became a much better practitioner. Steve, I wanted to also ask you about emotions, because this is something I've done quite a lot of work on personally myself, um, around how to manage those and how to understand when an emotion comes in. How does that feed into the chimp and the chimp paradox? 
What I'm saying with emotions, first, they're not negative and they're not positive. They're just an, a message from your brain to say, I have concerns. So really, it's the way that the chimp communicates this system to us as humans in order for us to make a decision. So when the chimp says, for example, at the Olympics, I'm really worried and I'm anxious, I might fail here, and what might people think? That emotion of anxiety that you're experiencing is a message to say, what do you want to do with it? So what we don't do is engage with it. What we do with it is say, right, well, do I want this emotion? And if not, let's discard it and replace it with one that I want. And if I do want this emotion, well, how do I want to use this emotion? So that is you can probably detect as a skill. You're not going to just have a process to do that. You know, I can't do that. Maybe other uh, psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists can. So they might use techniques then. I don't go for that. What I like to work with in the model I use is, that you are in charge of your mind, if you understand what it's doing and what it's trying to tell you and support you, because it's always on side. The chimp is not a negative thing. It's always a positive. It just gives us uncomfortable negative feelings to get its message over. But my model is to you are unique. Let's learn what works for you and how you want to run your mind. So really, I'm just training people to operate a machine. So coming back to your question on emotion is, that part of the machine is going to use emotion to communicate with you. So it's natural, it's healthy, it may not be helpful. So you have to make a decision, this is helpful. If it isn't, let's turn it into an action. Yeah, for for sure. I think, um, Charlie, going back to Steve's model, when I first started working with Steve, probably the best question that he, he asks me to start is, what type of person would you like to be? And then, of course, you list all of these behaviors and the way that you'd like to present yourself to the world. And then he quickly says, well, that is the person that you are. Deep down, that is the person you are. But once your chimp hijacks your system, then you're presenting something different. And, and that alone just really reset me in my tracks and, and made me feel a lot better about myself from the start because I realized I was just being hijacked. That's a really good point, James. And I'll, I've got to pick it up because of people listening that it's so important for your self-esteem that you recognize what's going on here, that the person that we you wanted to be let's say you said calm and, and collected rational uh, if you said that that's what we see when your chimp and computer go silent that person does present to the world but generally in day-to-day life our chimps are constantly active so they color the presentation to the world that people see they don't see the the real you they see you with an imposition and hijack from the chimp often a total hijack or they see the computer coming in and influencing your behaviors or your decision making but it's really important that you then get home, look in the mirror and see not a chimp or a computer, but you as a human being and say, this is the real me. Now, I want to, um, I could get into this all day because it's something I've definitely had to do a lot of personal work on in terms of my mental health. But one of the things, Steve, we wanted to talk about in this first episode was around weight management. I wondered if you could talk us through how important it is to have the right mindset I don't know whether that's the right word to use in terms of weight management okay I have to say obviously when people listening that if this model doesn't resonate then I'll find something that does because clearly it's only a model you know I'm not saying this is the right pathway it's a pathway I'm used to because I'm a doctor Uh, so I'm saying first of all I would look at it this way you're asking your machine to do something which is your mind is going to manage your eating, uh, what foods you eat, how much you eat, and so on, with, with the hope that you'll get to the right weight or fitness or whatever you're trying to achieve. So it's all about managing a mind, and that's the way we've got to approach it. So when I look at weight management or anything for that, we first decide what it is you're trying to achieve, 
Uh, and then we form a plan of how we're going to manage our chimp and what we're going to put, as you said, James, so critically, what's in that computer? Because that's going to be a, the biggest advantage to managing the chimp. So we're going to understand and get insights into why we're eating too much, you're eating really uh, making poor decisions on what food we eat so that the quality of it or the, the actual substance of the food is not very healthy for us. So uh, that's my starting point is first decide what it is you want to achieve with weight management. And then when you've decided that, let's look at the potential pitfalls en route. But it is going to be unique to you. You're going to find what works for you with your machine. So some machines will work directly with their chimp and how it makes decisions. Other people work with the computer system and get those beliefs in which manages the chimp. So everyone's going to be unique. James, I don't know what you think, but I find this topic quite a hard topic for people because, I mean, I, I was doing something yesterday and one of the facts came up was 90% of diets fail. And is this because we approach with food rather than behavior? But Steve, in terms of weight management, I think whether you're an elite athlete or somebody like me, an amateur athlete or an everyday runner or something where you, you yo-yo and, and then it becomes so demotivating and you get so much fatigue and then there's this horrible guilt and then I almost become too obsessed. I'm a bit of an all or nothing. And when I was younger, I was a junior athlete and I got so obsessed with weight management that I would you know, limit myself. I would refuse to eat a biscuit because I, and it just became su such a mess in my head. Okay, a number of points. I'll try and go through them steadily. One is if you take your chimp on as a general principle, it will fight. So if you say, I am not going to eat a biscuit, you can guarantee your chimp's going to now fight and say, that's what you think. So you don't prod a chimp and then expect to win. So you eat a biscuit, basically. Exactly. And I think we know this with children. If you tell children not to do something. Years ago, I was working with a friend who's a junior school teacher. And I was explaining that children rebel because that's the nature of the neuroscience of the brain, that our chimps rebel. So you don't tell them what you can't do because they'll try and do it. And uh, she said to me, OK, we'll test this out. And I said, Ask them when you leave the room not to put a piece of paper in their ear. So she did. She said, when I come back in the room, I don't want to see anyone with a piece of paper in their ear. She went out for a minute, came back in, and half the class had torn tiny corners off their piece of paper and stuck it in their ear. And she, she said she couldn't stop laughing. She said, it, it opened her eyes to the fact that the chimp brain is going to kick off if you tell it you're not doing something. So it's not the approach to do to be intense and say this is really important because actually what you're doing is really antagonizing the chimp to say, right, we've got a battle on now and the chimp will take it up. And your problem with diet and eating and food is we have this incredibly strong drive to eat because without it, we wouldn't survive. So when you say to the chimp, we're not eating the biscuit, we're not doing this, that drive will kick in and the chimp will say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but I cannot contain this and we're going to eat and we'll eat what I think is impulsive and pleasurable. And now another thing the chimp paradoxically doesn't like is to be given a choice. If the chimp's given a choice, it will do what is an impulsive gratification. So again, it's not for everyone this, but let's say you said I'm on a strict 2,000 calorie diet a day as an athlete, which is tight, but if your nutritionist and James can bring in on this, says 2,000 is what they're doing, then what you don't do is say to the chimp, you're allowed 2,000, because the chimp now will decide on what 2,000 is, and it's going to go for immediate gratification and pleasure. Whereas the human is going to go for long-term gain and benefit and sensible eating. So the chimp paradoxically likes instruction. 
if you say, we're not going to make a deal of it, I'm not taking you on, but here's a way of helping you. So now working with your chimp, what we're going to do, we're only going to eat our cornflakes in the morning. We're going to have this for our dinner, chicken salad. We're going to have this for our... The chimp will actually enjoy that and because what you've done is worked with it and said, let's try this. And the chimp will take responsibility for keeping you in line. So for most people, they're much more likely to stick to a rigid diet, which is why a lot of people say this idea of drinking like four milkshakes a day works because the chimp's told that's all you're allowed and the chimp takes it up for you and gets on side. So there are pitfalls, um, but I have to work with the individual to make sure that's working for them. I think we'll get into this in a little bit anyways with Steve's model of behavior change, which is he refers to as the triangle of change. But before we get into that, a more practical example, I'd done a podcast a couple of days ago with Tom Fordyce, who you know is a journalist and with Gary Thomas. And Tom was telling a story of how he would go out for a long ride. He wouldn't have a plan during the ride of what to eat. And then he would come back, he would be absolutely starving and then raid the cupboards. And of course, in that scenario, he's just in pure chimp mode. Whereas what I was trying to say to Tom was if you had have had a plan when you actually got on your bike and fueled during the ride, had a plan for what you would have when you come home, then you would be making more rational decisions as opposed to chimp-like eating decisions. But maybe this is a good opportunity, Steve, to take a step back and go into that triangle of change type concept in, in promoting behavior. Okay. Um, the triangle of change is something I invented uh, years ago to help teach medical students uh, and psychology students what is it that we see in research that says these are the probable factors, the key factors that are going to elicit changes of behavior or belief in people. And there are three key factors we recognize. Uh, one of them is that the person must be suffering enough to want to change or the reward is big enough for them to go with. Now, sometimes people say, I'd love to be a certain weight, or, I'd love to have a healthy diet, but actually, they're not suffering on what they're doing. They're saying, oh, well, I'm a bit fat, and you know, it's not that bad. You know that person is highly unlikely to do anything. Whereas if somebody, say, is three or four stone overweight, and they've just had a minor stroke, for example, and we know that medically, it's probably not helping. The weight is going to tilt them to have a major stroke. Then now the, the drive to do that is, is enormous. So the chimp is more likely to commit to it and the human if the reward is seen as big enough or the suffering is too much. But if you're in the middle and you're a bit lukewarm about it and say it would be nice, the chance of moving gets lower and lower. So the answer for me is if the reward isn't big enough or the suffering isn't too much, let's make it that way. Second component is psychological mindedness. And really, that's quite a complex way of looking at the brain and saying, what does it mean? And people have different interpretations. So I'm going to give you a simple one. It's someone who says, look, it's all about me. If I've got the right way of perceiving things and the right way of interpreting, the right way of handling things and manage my mind well, then life's going to be good. But if I don't do that, I can't blame other people and circumstances. And I looked at this, obviously it's research well, but I find this with people. You can have two people who've been through horrendous circumstances in life and suffered, and yet one still comes up smiling and one doesn't. And we have to ask, what's the difference? And it's the psychological mind in us to say, it's not what you're experiencing in life, it's how you do, how you manage it. So psychologically minded people have got an awareness of the psychology of their mind and how it can function and other people's minds, and they operate with that. So start with yourself. And finally, commitment. And commitment is really quite complex. And I developed this screening for commitment when I worked in the drugs and alcohol field, 
with clients who were struggling with addictions. And I looked and said, look, what are the factors that are going to get them off these addictions if that's what they want? And so the commitment screen has two halves to it. One is essentially what is it you need, your equipment in the toolbox to get yourself away from this, which includes managing your mind. And the other is what's going to stop you giving that plan, as James said, when you form a plan of action, what's going to stop you doing it? So I look at what I call hurdles, barriers and pitfalls. So we really sit down and map out something that's really concrete that works for the person. In terms of that, it's really interesting because I think that, you know, when I was listening to you talk about suffering, I think even when people do really suffer, sometimes you get in that cycle where it's really hard to get yourself out of it because of how much suffering you're feeling. And I think that applies to a lot of people who try and diet. Um, A lot of it's to do with how they feel about themselves. Again, let's look at the rules of the neuroscience of the brain. We're not saying the chimp part is bad. We're not saying that. What I'm saying, it's a paradox. It can be good or bad. It depends how you manage it. And this is where the chimp actually comes to the rescue. Human, as humans, it's not always the chimp that's really not helpful. The human can be unhelpful. So the human can go down the route of saying, I should, and have put a gremlin in the computer system, I should be able to manage on my own. And that's actually not true. We're not built to be alone. So if you're struggling within yourself, the answer is, the chimp's got the answer, turn to the troop. So if we rely on professionals, friends, and say, right, can I have help? We're much more likely to succeed. And you see this practically borne out in things like Weight Watchers. People go along and they join in with others and it actually encourages them. So now we're actually working the chimp system that doesn't want to let others down or look foolish in front of others and also welcomes encouragement. So in that circumstance, when you're struggling is join forces with somebody else, either someone like James, a professional, or even just a friend to say, let's do it together and encourage each other. You're much more likely to succeed now. Yeah, no, I think that's great, Steve, the way you've summarized that there. One, one of the things that I learned most from working with you and that resonated most with me was before every decision, kind of just stop for a second and pause and ask yourself, what will the consequences be of this decision that I'm about to make? And even just that 10 or 20 second little pause, I find kind of recess the chimp, checks me back in with what I would like to happen in the future. And then I constantly make better decisions. And in the context of weight management, I think that is so critical. You go to a buffet at Christmas, for instance, everyone's overeating at Christmas. You go into a coffee shop, you see that coffee and the cake. You go into anywhere where there's food around you. And quite often, I find that it's like the chimp that's making that initial decision. And then I have to stop and my tracks check back in. Then I make better decisions. And I think once I've coached athletes and and amateur athletes, everyday people, how to just recognize that little 10, 20 second pause that you have, they tend to make better decisions. Steve, what advice would you give to like the everyday athlete at the moment? I I, I say athlete because I think anybody who can who exercises is an athlete in their own right with their own personal goals in terms of mindset? Depends again on the person because when we talk about this, obviously lockdown has been a very busy time for me. I have a lot of people that have come through the door for not just sport. I work across the board. Sport is a small part of the work I do really. Um, and, and obviously you can imagine some people are really anxious and, and I go down the route of saying, let's first look within the computer, like James said, and say, what are your beliefs here? Because if an athlete, for example, comes to me and says, look, I'm losing ground here. The answer is, well, let's not falsify the answers you are. You know, this is not, you're not doing what you normally do. So you couldn't expect 
to be in the same place if we didn't have lockdown. So let's go with reality here and not try and fool ourselves by saying, no, no, you won't have lost it. So I see that as a major flaw that people try and bluff and give falsehoods and expect the chimp to settle. And clearly they come back saying, oh, people are saying it'll all get better. And, and you can't guarantee that. So why not say we don't know? What we do know is lockdown will end. We do know things will return to normal eventually. And we do know that you'll have the opportunity to get back on your feet at that point. But you have to work with reality. So I, I wouldn't come in and do this great, you know, motivational stuff, which as people who work with me know, I don't do motivation. Uh, we do commitment and we just work with reality and say what's the truth and what can we do and not get stressed about what we can't do. And accept nearly all athletes uh, are likely to be off form at the moment. And it's just time before we get back on. Let's accept that and work with what we can do. See, before you go, because um, I think me and James could ask you questions and talk <laughs> about this forever. Um, I think you've touched upon it a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you some of the things that you can say to yourself. Say you did mention pitfalls, but say if you do have one of those days where it just doesn't work, what can you say to yourself to reset? Okay. There was a moment when I first started with British Cycling and Dave Brothers asked me, he said, what do we say to athletes when they're on the bike in the velodrome about to go out to an Olympic final? And I remember saying to him, I have no idea. And he was horrified and said, what a psych. And I said, can I explain why I have no idea? It depends on the person. Because one thing I could say to one person may not help them at all. So I'm saying we need to know what it is. So your answer is this. I would say to you, sit yourself down and say, Think of three things that really, really ground you back to earth. And I don't know what they'll be. I don't know. But start the day with them and say, you know, these are the three things that make me stop in my tracks and think, okay. And it might be things like get a life. Say it to yourself. It's much easier to give yourself slap therapy than receive it from me. Uh, and so you can say get a life. It could be things like see the bigger picture. Some people say to me things like I say to myself, Whatever happens today, how important is it going to be in a year's time? And nearly every time the answer is, I won't even remember it. Thank you. I, I just, everything, I mean, everything you said, I think I can relate to. Um, so thanks so much. And we're really grateful to have you on and have your insights, Steve. Thanks very much. Thanks, Steve. Nice to see you again. James, I feel like there's so much you can get into with Steve and it's so fascinating and I don't know. I think I myself, I've done so much work in reflecting back and getting to know myself better and that inner voice and that inner chimp. And um, what did you think from that? Oh, there's so many things there, Charlie. I just love the simplicity of the model, to be honest. And the simplicity for me is, is really what would you like to happen versus what is actually happening at this minute in time? And that one question alone and using Steve's model just allows me to navigate what is happening at that minute in time. I think there's so much learnings for all of our listeners there. I think also what I love about it is being able to, you know, when he was saying to me about, it's not you, it's your chimp. And I think being able to separate those things, I think is really good in terms of, oh yeah, okay, that's my chimp talking. This is me. What do I want? What what do I want to happen with that? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and you know, I quite often use Steve's model when I'm in a room with other people. And I can see who's in chimp mode and, and yeah. who's in human mode, <laughs> and, and so it helps me not it helps me navigate the room and kind of lead the room better. Yeah, that's a really good way to do it. I think you can see then you can 
react slightly differently and adjust your behavior to be able to communicate with that person if they're in chimp mode, I think as well. I think it's great in terms of communication skill. Anyway, we could could chat about this all day. Um, I think we should move on to our next guest. So we wanted to hear from an athlete's point of view and how how it is actually doing weight management and weight loss because I can imagine it takes a real mental toll. So you picked this athlete because you've done a lot of work with, so I'll give it away, Garrett Thomas. Yes, I couldn't think of a better athlete actually, Charlie, to bring this to life because you're right, Garrett and I did work very closely for four or five years, but there was some mistakes that we made along the way. And the more we got to know each other, the more we trusted each other, effectively, um, the better the performances actually became on the road. And I'm pretty sure that Geraint will be very, very open with the mistakes that he's made. And I just hope that some of the listeners will take away some of the learnings from, let's be honest, what is one of the best endurance athletes on the planet. All right, let's go meet him then. Geraint Thomas is one of the world's most decorated endurance athletes. He's an Olympic gold medalist, 2018 Tour de France champion, and was the BBC Sports Personality of the Year in 2018. And that's just to name a few things, really. Geraint moved over to Team Sky in 2010, where between 2015 and 19, he worked closely with James on his nutrition and performance. Geraint, it's lovely to have you join us. Um, how was your bike ride? You've just been on a casual six hours or something, have you? Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> me. Um, yeah, it was six hours today. Luckily, you're down in the south of France, so the weather's a lot better than in the UK at the moment. And... Um, yeah, just over six hours, low carb ride, kind of standard procedure, really, with uh, <laughs> for me and James. But uh, yeah, tweaked it slightly. I allow myself to have a rice cake every hour now, so that's that's the treat I look forward to on the hour every hour. <laughs> Is that like a real treat when you're like, oh my god, it's the hour I can have my <laughs> rice cake? Is it like a goal that you work towards? <laughs> it it breaks up the ride a bit, yeah, but it also means you don't actually get really depleted and um which is the main thing because uh, i could do well I've, I've done it in the past you know kind of push it to the extreme and you, you don't eat the whole ride but then obviously you can do it in the moment but then you know you have lunch and then by the evening you're just starving again and you have the tendency to overeat then so it sort of cancels out the the not eating on the bike basically so allow yourself not to get too depleted and then you can sort of stick to the regime then the rest of the time. So that's the idea anyway. We wanted to talk to you about weight management, um, which I'm sure you're very well versed in being a cyclist, but where are you at the moment in terms of racing? So you've just had one race and what's your plans for like this year? Yeah, this was the very start of the season now. Um, My winter was, was different to normal. I had a few injuries and stuff. So I started Started later because I crashed in in October, fractured my pelvis, so I had six weeks out there. Then two weeks after riding again, a guy crashed in front of me and I ended up dislocating my shoulder, so then I was out for a little longer. So, you know, I had to isolate over Christmas as well after going back to the UK, so it's, it's definitely been um, up and down winter, but it's just good to be back racing again. And um, the last couple of weeks really have just been about sort of chipping off the, the excess sort of... Um, off-season weight that I seem to acquire quite easily. Um, well, I don't really help myself either, either though. It's not like James I... James is laughing. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, in my podcast, actually, he called me the cycling's Ricky Hatton, which, uh, <laughs> which was... I didn't know whether to take offence or, you know. Well, Ricky's a very nice guy and also 
was extremely well loved and is extremely well loved and was a very successful boxer. I'll take it as a compliment then. <laughs> um, so are you a bit like that then in terms of pushing things to the extreme and then going the opposite end of things? I presume that's what, James, you meant when you said about Ricky Hatton. Yeah, I think there is some there is some similarities with G and the professional boxing type approach because I tell you one thing, when once he commits, boy does he commit, he's on at full gas and, and it's great to work with on that. But of course you can't sustain that all year round. So quite rightly, these athletes should be enjoying themselves in the off season. And of course, as G mentioned at the minute, it's pre season and cycling, so he's coming back into it and he's getting himself back ready to race and hopefully back to win another Tour de France in July again. How close is cycling to boxing then? And that comparison with losing weight? Because I think we see it, the public do anyway, more often in boxing, because we can see the weight differences and the weigh-ins, but we see it less in terms of cycling. Well, the big difference between boxing and cycling, Charlie, is obviously the time that you've got to make the weight. In boxing, it's normally 8 to 12 weeks in a training camp. But as Garin's just mentioned there, six months out from the tour or five months, he's already starting to think about his weight. So you've still got to lose weight, but you're losing it over a much longer time frame. Um, and then the challenge is not doing too much too soon. In fact, I often used to joke with G that you don't win the Tour de France in January. When he was going off in his extreme modes, we were always trying to pull him back. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is basically that all or nothing approach for me. And am I either all in and, you know, pushing the boundaries or completely off and um and yeah like James says it's kind of the tour is in July and that's when you need to be at your leanest and for me you know I'd say I don't know maybe eight weeks max I don't know if you'd agree James but that's the kind of where I can have my optimum weight basically because it's so unnatural for me you know I think you know when I race the Grand Tour it's around 68 kilos but I think naturally I'm probably easy sort of 75 really so to get it down to that, and you still obviously need to keep your power because that's the main thing, obviously, your power to weight when you're climbing in the tour. So, yeah, that's the biggest challenge for sure to get down to it and then just sustain it in the right way as well. So it takes a bit of time because, you know, to do it the right way, you need to do it over a longer period and rather than crash dieting because it's something I've done in the past and certainly learned lessons from. So it's just knowing your body as well, understanding the fluctuations and and. Like for me, for instance, if I have a lot of salt, a lot of sodium, I do swell up quite a lot. Like my body absorbs the water a lot more than somebody else would. Um, then that affects you in the race as well then. Same with carbs and things as well. So yeah, it's just understanding your body, which it, it definitely took me a long time. Like, you know, like you said, I think James joined the team around 2015 and it definitely took two or three years to actually start nailing it properly, really. In terms of the fact that you said it's not natural for you, how important is getting down to that weight then in terms of your performance do you have to hit 68 kilograms yeah i'd say yeah i think i think well mentally as well if i know i'm in the 68s and i know you know i'm there i'm ready you know at 69 you probably could do but i think to have your sort of baseline in in the mid 68s i think is key for me really like every day is is up and down like there's times in the tour that i won when i would have been high 69s but it all depends on the previous day and what you got to come the next day and like i say that's the main thing is knowing those fluctuations but yeah for sure the power to weight is key when it comes to trying to win a grand tour and for me it's like as i said it's not natural but you look at the other gc guys they're all normally small 
skinny blokes naturally, you know, and, and yeah, I'm not a natural sort of GC guy. We were talking to Steve Peters, weren't we, James, about mentality um, and about, I know you've done quite a lot of work with him on the chimp. How hard mentally, though, is it to do that weight loss and then maintain it? Yeah, the hardest bit is getting down to it. Once you're there, you kind of, the morale you get from it and your chimp's happy, I guess, and, and it's easy to sort of then stay there and like, you know, right, okay, just keep doing the right things here and you're on a good roll then. Um, the hard bit, yeah, is definitely those that last kilo. Like for me, getting down to seventy is okay, and then you can race most of the season seventy high sixty nines, you know, and be competitive and you know improving your fitness and stuff along the way. But yeah, that last kilo is certainly the toughest. And then it, it seems a shame. Then you know, it's like you get down to it, all that work, like six months of hard work. You're at that weight for six weeks. You have your big race, your big event, and then suddenly. Two weeks later, you you seem to be back up to seventy three straight away. But again, that's more. That, it's not like you put on five kilos of fat straight away. But um, I've had a good go at that anyway, haven't I, James? <laughs> <laughs> I think you've testified that on many occasions, G. I think there's already so many good points, Charlie, that G's made here. First of all, is you can't sustain that optimal race weight for the whole season, and a lot of riders, even at the professional level try to get down too early and then they try to maintain that weight the whole time of the season and of course it's just not possible and that's where real careful planning comes in with the team making sure that we're putting the rider in the right races at the right time and then putting around that coaching plan to peak for that right race and for people like G it's it is all about the Tour de France three weeks in July making sure that that's that's the peak of your annual performance plan. What's it feel like? It's something I wanted to ask you when it goes wrong. I was reading, I think it was, was it back in 2016 maybe? And you said that you just knew you'd got the the nutrition wrong. How do you approach it? I think you pushed it too much, I think, or lost too much. What's that? I'd love to know what it actually feels like. Well, yeah, it was. It was 2016, just before Tour of Swiss, which that race finishes two weeks before the Tour. And... um I was a good weight, but I was like, oh, well, if I lose a bit more, I can be even better. And as we were talking about earlier about pushing the low carb sort of stuff, I basically did that. I was just too depleted. Um, you know, you can do it one or two days and you can kind of bounce back from it. But if you sustain, if you keep doing that like four, five, six, even times a week, you just, everything just, you know, your hormones and everything, your body is just getting more and more depleted and you just, not good basically and and that's what happened to me and then tour swiss i was second the year before and i really wanted to win go back and win and i ended up like 10th or 11th and just feeling really bad and i was supposed to go to the tours as like a backup leader and and that all got changed and it was more just go there and do your job and just see what happens but you know my whole role changed as well because of it and that was a big big lesson learned and um after swiss then i did sort of uh realize what I'd done and sort of try to reload in time for the tour and it, it ended up being I was I was pretty good in the tour then I, I did some some good work and stuff but I certainly missed out on on going for a result myself because of that just pushing it too much basically and you know I think we've all got pro athletes have a tendency to do that because we all want to achieve as great a results as we can really and it's easy to sort of get 
too carried away with it. And like I say, you know, oh, if I'm a little bit lighter or if I just do this extra effort or, and then suddenly before you know, you've, you've screwed yourself and you're like, you know, a week or so out from the, the biggest target of the year and you kind of balls it up for yourself. So that was a big, a big lesson for sure. How do you find that balance? How do you find that balance, James, when you're working with people and when you were working with Garen? Because you, you, you're a professional athlete and you've got that mentality which makes you successful and where you are, where you push and push and push. But then, like you said, it's that fine balance. How do you find that? Well, I think sometimes the, the athletes have to work it out for themselves, Charlie, because I believe that no one likes being told what to do. And I think the best way to learn is, is to experience it yourself and, and either make that mistake yourself or have that learning yourself. And once G went through that process, we both learned. We we quickly found out what the limits were. And for sure, I, I'm not sure that we would have went on and won the Tour de France in 2018 if we hadn't made those mistakes along the way, G. I, I don't know what your perceptions are of that. Yeah, I think so. I think um, 100% just knowing, knowing that limit and knowing not to go too far because, yeah, it's only going to do more damage than good, really. And I think you kind of need to know yeah, you need to know that limit really to throttle back from it and then know what the optimum sort of way of doing it was. And um, yeah, it worked out well afterwards, obviously. But at the same time, I still have that thought sometimes like, oh yeah, but push a bit more. So the key thing is working with someone that you trust. So that was why it was great to, to be working with James for such a long period that you can trust them and you can be honest with them when you, and I know what I'm doing is the wrong way to, to go about it but having someone to just throttle you back a bit and just rein you in and that that's key as well I think that that support and the right support around you and the trust is is a big factor in it all I was going to say you both must have had a really close relationship especially during that 2018 year to be able to work like that yeah I think that the 2018 tour Charlie was kind of everything coming together and and working all at once I mean we got to the stage where we were pretty much weighing out every single meal that Garant had on the race. And and I remember after stage 11 or 12, when G won in the Alps two days in a row, I think a lot of people thought, right, he's, he's going to blow up soon. Because in the previous years, he had done well on the tour and then maybe blew up in the last week. But me and G knew that there was no way he was going to blow up because we were putting exactly the correct amount of fuel that he needed day after day. And fair play to G, he, he was just trusting me to look after him in that regard. But then, of course, he has to deliver on the road. And and I didn't doubt it for one minute. I knew that there was no way he was going to blow up from a fueling perspective. Did you know that? Yeah, definitely. Did you feel it? Yeah, it's just like if I eat this, that's what I need. You know, it's enough. And then, you know, if you fancy like a treat at the tour, it's probably a bit of jam on bread, you know, <laughs> that's our treat. But, but yeah, it's... It is definitely when you're at a race a lot more. It's, it's fueling, you know. It's not eating really for enjoyment. Um, you know, if I went out for a meal, I wouldn't order 400, 400 grams of rice with some chicken and a bit of sriracha sauce. You know what I mean? Like it is purely like fuel. This is what I need to perform. But to be fair, the chefs on the team do manage to sort of mix it up a bit with different sauces and you know vinaigrettes and all this type of stuff but by the end of the day yeah it's exactly that eat this and much rice i basically would walk on the kitchen truck sit down and i'd just have a plate of rice just put in front of me and then yeah help yourself to some chicken or fish and 
and that's it. That's what you need. And uh, that's what it was like for three weeks. It was great fun. <laughs> Sounds it. <laughs> yeah. And I was also going to say, Charlie, actually, the difference that year was the running to the Tour de France because G had won the, the Criterium Dauphiné several weeks before, which is one of the biggest races in the calendar. And it felt like we were kind of on that upward trajectory. We weren't falling over. We were just always on the way up because we were making the weight correctly, chipping away at it every week, every month. And then when, when you got to the tour, he was he was on fire from the start, so strong right from the beginning. How much would you accredit that to your nutrition then? I think it was a, a massive part. For a start, like one thing, when you feel, when you know you're lean and you, but you're also strong, you mentally you just feel good and you feel ready like oh, I'm, I'm i'm ready for this you know like bring it on I'm, I've, I'm all over it and then yeah like the fuel inside like when you've nailed it you know you don't feel over full but you obviously don't feel hungry but you feel just powerful and ready to go so yeah it's just almost like you just hit that sweet spot and it was and then because of, like james said the one dauphiné prior to the tour that gave me the confidence even more, you know, solidifies that belief that what I'm doing is right. Just keep doing this. And and the big thing is as well, it's, it's when you're just given what to eat, it's, it takes any decisions away from you. Like you don't have to think about it. Um, it's like when you're racing, the, the, the less decisions you can make in a race. For instance, with Luke Rowe, you know, in a flat stage, I just follow him and I didn't think, you know, I just, you know, you could switch off. And then when the time comes to really, you know, turn it on on the big days and the days of matter feels like you have even more energy to and concentration to do that because three weeks on the road racing around france with all the media and the fans and well pre-covid anyway it was uh mad you know it's just like a big circus and it's just massive amount of press and pressure and publicity like every day the more you can chill out and just not worry worry about things or think about certain things the better really and um so yeah the nutrition the fuel inside that that was all taken care of in my head. I just basically eat that every 20 minutes or whatever, depending on the stage, have something and that's it. Yeah. The rest will take care of itself. How do you cope with that circus? Is it, yeah, is it a good thing? Yeah. In 2018, it, it was, I felt like I was in a great place physically, but mentally as well. I was just, just really enjoyed it and really soaked it up and really sort of, which is mad really. Cause you'd think, you know, you'd, you're leading the biggest bike race in the world, something you've dreamed of all, all your life, and then suddenly you're there and you got a chance of winning it. But yeah, the, I didn't really feel pressure. It was just like, this is just amazing. Like It was almost like I was 12 again, just a little kid, just enjoying racing my bike and just being like, wow, I'm racing my bike, doing well, and this, it happens to be in the Tour de France. And um, yeah, it was a great three weeks, really. And um, the only time I did like think, this is serious now, was before the tt on the the penultimate stage because we had so much more time to think then because i wasn't off till four o'clock or something and uh we were in a in a hotel room i was sat in a hotel room on my own with like three hours to kill nothing to do i was listening to to random 30 for 30 podcasts actually about some random boxer in the 1970s just anything to take my mind off what i was about to do really and um but then once you get to the start and you start warming up and you, you get into that sort of computer mode, as Steve Peters would say, and uh, like autopilot really, and, and you know it's that same process that you're used to and you just switch on to that then. And then once you're racing, it's, it all takes care of itself and then you, yeah, 
cross the line, win the tour, and you're just like, man, this is crazy. And you end up crying on international TV. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right you should if you've won the Tour de France. <laughs> what, what, um, I just want to take you back to that moment when you're watching 30 to 30 about some 70s boxer. What goes through your mind? And I know you've done a lot of work around mindset for a long time. But what goes through your mind then? What starts to creep it in? It was more, that was the first time I'd allowed myself to think like, oh, I might actually win the tour. Because prior to that, I was always like, just focus on today, focus on the next climb, and then the climb after that, and then the finish, and, you know, focus on just fueling right, and do all the little things, and as I have been for the rest of the race, and it'll take care of itself. But then obviously, yeah, the, the stage 20 was the TT, and then suddenly I was in this hotel room, just like, I could actually win the tour today. And I was like, well, I don't want to, suddenly then you can just feel this like pressure building and building as I didn't want that. Obviously it just wanted to have the same attitude I had from the rest of the race, but it was hard because I was just lying there in bed just with my own thoughts, you know? So that's when I was trying to sort of occupy myself listening to other stuff. And, but to be honest, it was all, that was just kind of background noise in the end. I wasn't really concentrating on that. It was still just thinking of the TT and, so then I just tried to think about the actual TT and how I wanted to ride it. So it was just, yeah, we split it up into maybe seven or eight different sectors, like the climb here, ride a certain amount of watts, recover on the next bit, the descent, blah, blah, blah. And I was just going over that over and over and over. And also eating-wise, you kind of think, well, should I have a bit more to eat then? Do I need some more rice cakes? Or, But you've had what you need and and you know that. And um, it was the first time I actually struggled to eat it as well, to be honest, with just with the nerves creeping in. Like, I don't know if you've ever been that nervous that you struggle to eat. So that started to come in a bit, the butterflies in the stomach. And I was like, Phew. yeah, this is uh, this is big time now. Do you ever get that like on the bike? I, I was telling you about this, Jones, and I, um, if I'm doing like a triathlon or something, sometimes like, I know I need to eat and I just... It's not that I can't be bothered. It's that I'm too like focused on what I'm doing and I just don't want to waste my time trying to unwrap my bar or gel or something. I know that's the wrong attitude, but do you ever kind of just not want to fuel as well when you're actually riding and competing? Uh, not really. I think because I've just done it so long and so often now, is that's just the process that you do and what you're used to. Um, yeah, like it's... 15 years pro now as well which is mad it's gone so fast but yeah it's just it's so built in now I'm so used to doing that that it's just second nature really yeah and James what's it like from your perspective because you're hit we're hearing you know Garrett talk about the fact that you know should I eat another rice cake what are you doing during that time and during those moments in between and on the tour and making sure that that everything's like measured out to the exact point, every grain of rice. <laughs> no, I think that's a great question because the, the role of a race nutritionist actually being on race is, is so important because the details really do matter. And on a stage like the Tour de France, if, if you cross the finish line at, let's say, 5 p.m. and the race starts the next day at 11 a.m., you haven't got long to recover. And those first three or four hours on the bus on the way home to the hotel are absolutely critical for recovery. If you miss those first two or three hours recovering, 
um, in terms of the feeding points, you will be seriously compromised for performance the next day. So quite a lot of the time was actually making sure that those first two or three hours were really taken care of. I remember times putting banana cake in front of G, saying, right, you need to eat this cake now, mate, because this will make a difference the next day. And it all adds up. But there's a couple of great lessons that G's already talked about, which was taking care of all of those little details in the journey and not thinking too much about the final destination. And I think a lot of us in life struggle with that. We think, right, I want to run a sub three hour marathon. And we go out for our first run and we go, we're so far off, it's never going to happen. And if you take some advice from G is don't think about the three hour marathon, think about your training session today, get it done, then do it tomorrow. And before you know it, you're on track for your goals. Yeah, I think it was interesting you were saying, G, that you didn't think about about winning the overall thing. It was about about each part of it, I suppose. And do you feel like if you just started to get carried away, oh my God, I'm going to win the Tour de France, that it could have actually had a negative effect or that you focused so much on that massive goal? Yeah, definitely. I think you just become more and more emotional and your performance fluctuates with that. I think when you're a lot more stable and, well, stable, like, but yeah, when it's more logical and just that thinking like computer mode almost, uh, your performance is a lot more, yeah, it doesn't fluctuate as much. Um, and I think like like you're saying about breaking up anything really so when I'm trying to lose weight get down to 68 it's not like I'm thinking right I need to be 68 kilos and stand on the scales every day and thinking Pow, four kilos off or 3.8 kilos off you kind of have your, your little goals along the way so it's like oh by the end of this month I want to be down to 70 or whatever and by this race I want to be 68 and a half and then and it's the same with like with the tour and, and not thinking about the overall like the finish just worrying about today and the same thing like if somebody's training and you're suffering and you're like oh i got 10 minutes to go just think about the next two you know and get through them or the next lamppost or y- your mum and dad's house which is halfway around the course or something and just breaking everything up into more bite-sized chunks is helps with whatever you're trying to do really is that what you do when you're racing yeah so Alpduez, for instance, you know, at the start, it could be, you know, really hot. You're struggling a bit and it, it would be easy to think, oh, I got 40 minutes of this and like, how am I going to do that? But you kind of think, right, just get to this next hairpin and you focus on your breathing, focus on sort of relaxing your body, whatever. Um, maybe have your last gel or whatever. And yeah, you, you break it all up and, and don't see it as one big, massive obstacle, really. I wanted to also ask you about the difference between track and road cycling in terms of your body shape, your weight management and nutrition? Because you obviously started in, in track um, and then I think you changed to, was it 2010? Yeah, uh, after 2012 Olympics, I fully focused on the road. But yeah, it's, it's massive night and day for me. Like on the track, power to weight is irrelevant almost. Like obviously you don't want to be carrying loads of access kilos around your your belly and stuff but you know you don't have to go uphill it's just a flat track it's all about being powerful so if you're carrying a bit extra it's it's fine really you know and um the regime and what you're eating on the track compared to now when you're trying to perform in a in a grand tour even like a one-day classic like the cobble classics is it's kind of halfway house between the two but yeah it's just like james was saying weighing out how the amount of carbs you're having before and after every stage and Whereas, yeah, on the track, 
we stop on the on a coffee ride and everyone would have a coffee and a cake, you know? Like it's just totally different. Like, I can't remember the last time I stopped on a bike and had a coffee and a cake. Oh, that's what I do. <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I love cycling. <laughs> well, yeah, for, I think for like for amateur riders or whatever whatever tag you want to give them, I think it's great, you know. I I'd love to do that, you know. You kinda when you're not doing it professionally and you know got a big performance to do like if you've gone out for a bike ride and you've burned five hundred thousand calories then yeah treat yourself i'm happy for you because i can't <laughs> do it <Yeah>. thanks Can, <laughs> do you never in. do that not not even not even in the down times you know when you're not you're on the off season like over christmas uh generally no because like the off season, like proper off season, I don't ride my bike. And then when I start again in November, I'm like, I've got such a lot to lose. I can't really afford to have this cake now. Um, but yeah, I might treat myself every now and again, you know, especially like if it's birthday parties or whatever, you have something and it's not like I'm, I live like a monk from November till, till July. It, it increases in intensity through the season. But um, yeah, generally don't, down this neck of the woods, I might have a croissant or something. But yeah, I'm looking forward to when I retire and just go to a good calf back home and just, yeah, have a big carrot cake and, yeah, <laughs> caramel yeah. macchiato or whatever There you go. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add, what do you, oh yeah, you just said you don't, so you don't, do you not cycle at all? You don't even take over in the, when you're not racing? I do, like, obviously when the season's going, but in the off season, no, I completely stay off the bike for, good four or five well no yeah three and a half to four and a half weeks i guess this season was longer because of my pelvis injury and i had six weeks off but yeah, i wouldn't touch the bike at all and then once i start again i'm kind of like right i'm i'm going again now this is back to trying to be a professional athlete yeah i was just going to say charlie that one of my favorite stories from g oxley which i think should resonate with a lot of listeners is when he first rode the tour de france and he was still riding on the track. It was it second last G you came? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. But ten years <laughs> later, ten years later, he went on to win the Tour de France, and and just what a great example that is of what you can achieve when you really commit and put your mind to something. Did you doubt? Did you doubt yourself then when you moved that made that transition and you did become become second to last? Well, when I was 2007, when I rode my first tour, yeah, and I was 140th out of 141, and. I was like, there's no chance I'll ever win this race. Like, not a chance. And then, but obviously you get older, you get fitter, you get stronger. And as the years went by, I was like, oh no, I can definitely be competitive in road racing. I don't know about the grand tours, but you know, the one day races or the week long races. And then I saw Brad do what he did. And I was like, oh yeah, well, after London now, I want to fully commit to to the road and see how far I can take it. I don't know how far that, that is, but just want to give it, a good go and yeah like every year just seemed to get better and better i think that it, where the penny sort of dropped was probably 2015 and i'd done a lot of work for for through me since the stage one basically a lot of riding in the wind and on the front on the flats and then was there in the climbs and i was actually fourth on gc going into stage 19 there was only two more mountain stages to go but then i blew up completely on 19 or not completely but i got dropped quite early then I just decided to just sit up and just ride in the Gruppetto, save as much as I could, and then so I could try and contribute the next day, which was the final day. 
finished up Alpduez, I think, actually. And um, and then I was able to to do the last bit for the team and things there. But that, that's when I thought, if I just looked after myself and not had to be in the wind and do all this extra stuff, maybe you know, I'd be able to at least hang on to this fourth or, or do even better. And, and so that's when I decided to, to go full on for the tour. Then obviously 16, the whole, what we mentioned earlier with just dropping the weight too fast and pushing a bit too much. And then 17, we, we pretty much nailed it going into the Giro that year. That was my main goal. And um, I think myself and James were, were confident where I was at and we were like, well, it's go time, you know, we're, we're going to be right in the mix here. And then a silly little crash and the, the, the race is over then. But then I came back, rode the tour a few weeks later and then won the first stage, wore the yellow jersey for a few days and then got taken out again and broke my collarbone and, and that ended that. But then 18, then the following year, went back and and we won it. So uh, definitely uh, it takes some hits along the way and a lot of learning. But yeah, I think if you if you do want something and you fully commit to it and you do everything you can then if it happens fantastic and if not at least you know you've done everything you could you seem i mean james obviously knows you well but to me you seem like quite a chilled guy how do you deal with those hits though or are you just chilled on the outside no i'm pretty chilled really like um i don't know it's just the way i've always been the big downs do hit me hard at the time you know and you're devastated because even though you realize it is just a bike race, it's not the end of the world, you know, I've still got, you know, great family and et cetera. But when you've committed so much to something and then for it to end, especially in a, in a silly little crash or something, it, it is hard to take initially, but then a day or so later, you kind of see it differently. Like, right. Okay. Let's start again, make new goals, make new plans and, and build towards them. And, and that's what helps me get through it really is, is okay. That's done. Forget about that. And, this is the next goal and we're going for that and head down and, and crack into that. So what, what is the next goal? I know I asked you about this season, but you've won the tour, you've won the biggest endurance race on the planet. So what's now? Yeah, I completed cycling basically, haven't I? I'm just doing this for a laugh now. Yeah. yeah well just, you know, go and have your carrot cake and you've done it now. <laughs> no, I just, I think the following year after winning the tour, was tough just because I'd had such a big off season and I'd really just let myself go and enjoy it because you know you don't win the tour every day do you so but then even that season I took some knocks along the way and ended up going to the tour ended up second which I was proud of really with with everything that had happened the previous year but it sort of lit that fire in me again it's kind of like oh bastard I want to win this thing again and um, obviously COVID sort of affected last season but yeah, so I'm super motivated to just go and put everything into trying to win the tour again. And then hopefully the Olympics after that. It's good. The the team's so strong as well. And I think that helps. It it keeps everyone on their toes, keeps everyone pushing each other. There's no room for complacency or anything like that. So uh yeah, and having the big, big goals like that is what really drives me now because once you've won the biggest event, it's hard to sort of get motivated for for something a level or two below. So yeah, just put your head head on the block and just go for it and see what happens so what advice would you give to like you said amateur so an amateur or an everyday cyclist or somebody that goes out on a weekend but you know wants to do well in cycling what what advice would you give i think have a have a goal that excites you and isn't easy i think you need to be challenged and yeah just have a good plan is the main thing i guess you know that's from 
nutrition to training to even your mental approach. And yeah, never lose focus on why you're doing it. Think, right, this is my goal and this in however long, far away it is. Break it up into chunks as as we've already mentioned. And uh, yeah, just every day then tick that box. Yeah, that was another day complete. Like I did everything today that I needed to and that I could do to be my best. Yeah, go from there. And I think, you know, if you do it with somebody else as well, like for instance, if you want to, yeah, run a marathon or or whatever, I think if you're meeting people and you're in it together, you can motivate each other almost because I'm not motivated every day. You know, there's some days where I'm like, oh man, I, I really can't be asked going out today. But because I'm committed to that goal and I've I've made that decision, like this is what I'm going for, then I'll get out and I'll just get it done. And um, like I say, it's not easy. You know, it's, it's hard and you got to push yourself. And so, yeah, I think if you're doing it with people as well, that would that's a big help. I think it's always nice to hear somebody like yourself say, you know, I'm not always motivated every day. <laughs> because I think sometimes it's the impression that elite athletes are. And I think it's nice because it just normalizes it. And I think it makes everyone feel, oh yeah, it's okay. And it's normal when I don't feel motivated each day. And I know you've got to go. So both of you, what advice would you give in terms of weight loss and also weight management and nutrition and fueling on the bike? On the bike, I'd say little and often. So from the start, uh, not just sort of thinking, oh, I'm hungry now and, and having something to eat because then you kind of, you're already done. Yeah, little and often. And I've got to say, I've been banging on about rice cakes, but those new bake bars are, are bloody good as well, to be fair. And also they've got, you know, the whole um, glucose and fructose. That's the new thing now that everyone we're all talking about is that ratio between the different carbohydrates and so your stomach can absorb it better. And that's what I'd say about on the bike, yeah. Can you explain, James, the difference between the glucose fructose? and the thing that everybody's yeah. doing. Yeah, it's it's basically two types of sugar, Charlie, which means that um, both types of sugar get emptied from the stomach a little bit faster, and so therefore you've got more carbohydrate being delivered to your muscle, and hence you've got more fuel, really, to use. Going back to your original question, there's, there's so many great lessons in here that G has, has mentioned in this podcast, and in relation to fueling in particular, I think the key lessons that I would like to really stress to the listeners are when it comes to weight management, don't go to extremes because bad things can happen. Have your goals, but chip away at them consistently. And then when it comes to actually fueling on the bike, like he's just mentioned, little and often is usually the most sophisticated way to do it. It's the simplest way and it's the most sophisticated way. And I, I just hope that anyone listening to this, especially younger athletes, really listens to the good advice that G has, has given here. It's don't push yourself to extremes. The time will come to do that much later on in your career. And at the beginning, just fuel well consistently. Thank you for joining us. We're really glad to have you. And yeah, so many, so many amazing things, I think, in terms of nutrition, but also in terms of mindset. Um, so thank you very much and good luck with everything. James, one of the things I love most about my job is listening to athletes. I just find it absolutely fascinating getting into their heads. But you know what I'm finding the most common theme across the board, and Geraint mentioned it as well, is about how to break things down. And I find it fascinating how he didn't actually think about that end goal or, or winning the Tour de France. It, he just focused on those small goals in between. Yes, I think, Charlie, if, if you listen carefully to Garine's interview there, it's pretty clear that there's, there's been a lot of learnings from working with Steve over the years, from his early days at British Cycling. It, what impresses me most about G is just his mindset 
and his resilience. He, he keeps coming back time after time, never gives up, keeps pushing. Um, there's just so many lessons that we can all learn here as, as listeners to take into our own lives. What have you learned the most from working with him? Probably that mindset thing. Um, and also me as a practitioner, actually, it, it's helped me get better as a coach, actually coaching people one-to-one because our relationship was so strong. And I think in my earlier years as a practitioner, I didn't really appreciate that coaching element to sports science. And now I'm fully behind that concept that sports scientists are coaches first and foremost. Yeah, I think also what I'd really take from that is just watch that extremism. I think a, a lot of athletes, we recognise it in a lot of athletes. And but I think, I don't know, sport can sometimes lend itself to that, can't it, in terms of nutrition and fueling and just making sure that there's that balance. Yes, and, and also one of the most interesting things there, Charlie, that Geraint mentioned was when he got it wrong and the the catastrophic effect that it has on his performance. And that's really the reason why I wanted to have Trent Tellingworth as our third guest. Trent's a good friend of mine, one of the world's leading sports scientists, and he's really leading this area at the minute known as REDS, which is Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And at base, in fact, if you listen carefully to G's interview, he said that if he pushes things for two or three days in a row, he starts to really feel it. And res is a concept that if you have too much of a calorie deficit consistently day after day, week after week, then essentially your body begins to break down. And this we're, we're trying to study this in real detail. It's a real hot topic. And I'm hoping that Trent can then bring this to life and simplify it for our listeners. All right, let's go and meet Trent then. Dr. Trent Stellingworth is a very well-respected expert in the field of sports science and has some pretty huge titles that I'm not going to go into. Trent has not only worked with big-name athletes across numerous Olympic and Commonwealth Games, but is also the Director of Performance at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific and also the Sports Science, Sports Medicine and Innovation Lead for Athletics Canada. Trent has directed loads of research across sports performance and is a leading expert in the science of relative energy deficiency in sport, which we'll be discussing and we'll explain that in a moment. Trent, you've got a really impressive background. I can't wait to get more. Thanks so much for joining us to this podcast. The first thing I'm going to say, though, is because you this is like not the first time you guys have spoke this week, right? <laughs> um, so why are you like a married couple at the moment? I think that's a good way to start. Yeah, I was joking with uh, with James that we're like a married couple and seeing each other a few times a week like married couples do. Um, <laughs> no, uh, James has invited a few of us on a deep dive on this very topic this week. And so there's maybe 15 or 20 of us that have been hashing through the science, what we know, what we don't know for about two hours a night. Uh, and so this is our third time connecting this week already. James, before you come in on that, Trent, what's your, can you describe to us a bit about, I, I kind of mentioned some of your titles, but in terms of the research that you do? Primarily, initially, all my research was nutrition and performance related. I think I've branched out since then. Um, I'm at one of our Olympic training, Paralympic training centers here in Canada. And so it's primarily nutrition based, but I also do some work in altitude and heat research. And basically, uh, my job is to try and find ways to enhance performance or prevent injury in our elite athletes across multiple sports. There is still a lot of emphasis on the interaction between nutrition and physiology and performance, of which is the topic today on on relative energy deficiency in sport or, or REDS. And in many ways, I think we can almost just call it under recovery. And we're going to like, what are, what can we do to get more out of our athletes and prevent REDS? So that gives a little more of a background in terms of where I'm coming from. 
Yeah, I, look, I think this is probably one of the hottest topics in sport nutrition at the minute, but it could also be one of the most complex. I think the way that I would describe it is lots of us know that losing weight could be facilitative to performance. It can turn a good athlete into a great athlete. It can be the difference between winning and losing. However, on the flip side, if athletes resort to extreme dietary practices, consistently eating low-calorie intakes day after day, week after week, then it can have a whole host of negative implications for the body. And traditionally, we discuss this with female athletes under the female athlete triad. Now we're recognizing that it also affects males. Males aren't as tough as what people think. We're also susceptible to some of these negative things. Hence the new term relative energy deficiency and support. And what we'd like to try and cover with Trent today is to translate this to to you and I, the, the average day exerciser, and what things can we look out for when we're training? So there you go. That's your question, Trent. How does this apply to the recreational runner, the amateur athlete, somebody like me? I would say in many instances, it probably doesn't present until you're doing a certain amount of training, uh, at least four, five, six hours a week, coupled with incredibly busy lifestyles where you just can't keep up. And I work with a few athletes that are coming back from being mothers. And the slippery slope of reds is so much greater because they're trying to manage a household, uh, trying to have meals, their partner's working, their kids need to go to daycare, they're trying to rush around, get the groceries done. They accidentally skip a meal, which on one day is just fine. But when it's five days a week, that's where you slip into this. Your body adapts to... Uh, lack of calories. Like we, we've survived famines as humans, but it adapts in such a way that it starts shutting down the processes like, like bone growth and protein synthesis and, and some of your blood turnover. So your body actually becomes a little bit weaker over time. It's really hard to measure. I think we'll get into that, but also just look at uh, for the average person, their lifestyle demands. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. I get it. If I'm lucky to get out, I'm, I'm not in reds because I only get, get, get out three times a week. But it's the person who's 40 years old that wants to do an Ironman who all of a sudden pumps up their training. They're an executive. They're working for 50, 60 hours a week. They're up at 5 a.m. Their kids are demanding. Well, then Reds is susceptible to them too. You know, there's so many things I want to ask you and and James, but just talking of Ironman, because I can, that's something that I trained, I've done a few now, but I remember training for my first one actually. And I've got a picture up on on my wall and I look a lot thinner than I am now. And I'm at a good weight now. And I think it was because I don't have kids, but I was getting up at four or five in the morning, training. I was working all over the place every single day, traveling a lot as well and not intaking enough fuel. Yeah. And I might, I might mention too, that obviously body weight is a loose tracker to, to energy availability, but it's not a perfect one either. So for example, there's, there's published data showing Athletes that stay in the best energy availability or energy balance the longest are the leanest. Okay, and that's, so it's not necessarily on no, the look then. because like, if you're in a negative situation, your your body's going to want to store fat. It, it thinks it's in a famine, and so we try to work with our athletes and general public for train hard, eat well. Let's try to nail the energy balance as best as we can with the indicators we have and. And over the years, you'll just end up leaner and leaner and have lots of lean muscle mass and, and hopefully a lower body fat overall. Yeah, I, I can certainly relate to it a lot in the endurance 
sport world and also the combat sport world. Um, we see it a lot with combat athletes, whether it's boxers or mixed martial artists. In those last five, six, seven days before the weigh-in, they tend to restrict their calories to sometimes 500 a day for those five days. And then they turn up on the scales and you can just tell by looking at them that they're in clear signs of relative energy deficiency. And then, of course, they don't perform well on the consecutive night. The challenge for us as sport nutritionists, Charlie, is to help these athletes fuel consistently, but also get the balance to lose weight at the same time. And unfortunately, what people do is they restrict their calories day after day consistently. And that's when the negative things happen. Yeah, definitely. You know, one thing I wanted to pick up on, James, you mentioned it. You said that that a lot of this was spoken around in female athletes because there's that indication that I presume is menstruation, right? So how do you, what are the indicators and how do you identify it and in men as well? Well, I think Trent's well-placed to speak on the female because ironically, his wife was an athlete. And I don't know how he got permission for this, Charlie, but he actually published a paper on his wife, tracking all of her physiological details over 10 years of her career. So Trent, I'll I'll throw that curveball over to you, if you don't mind. And did that include um, post-pregnancy as well, Trent? Yes, it did. Yeah. Um, So my wife is much, much more famous than I am. She's a multi-time Olympian in the 1500 a finalist at the London London Olympics, and uh, I served as her her physiologist. And so um, at the time, I was the only one around to be able to do some of the body composition tracking, the blood work, the performance metrics. Again, in the ideal world, um, we were living in Switzerland then. In the ideal world, someone else would do that. Um, that's, I wouldn't recommend that you constantly do this uh, on your wife or partner. But um, we're both very open and very passionate about educating in this space. And so we had this unbelievable data set over her entire international career and two Olympics and a pregnancy in the middle. And so I worked it up into a case study. And, um, and basically what we tried to do with this case study is, is to thread the needle and understand that elite athletes to perform at their best need to have an incredible power to weight ratio or force to weight ratio. But with that comes some risk of reds and injury risk and, and some of the other outcomes of reds. And, and, and it's an approach that we did every single year over um, over a decade and honed it in and then published it in terms of best practice to try and um, maintain health while nailing performance. And um, it's gotten a lot of noise. It's an interesting data set and an interesting publication. And I think it's um, it's helped a lot of athletes realize, okay, I don't need to look like this year round. I shouldn't look like this year round. It's too hard on my body. In fact, I'm going to train better eight, nine, 10 months of the year, if I'm a little bit heavier and I'm fueling more, I'm training my body to carry a bit more weight. And then we can periodize this in such a way that just like you only physically peak once or twice a year, your your body's only going to be in physical peak once or twice a year. And um, it's created great conversations. And um, a few people aren't as supportive of the case study, uh, especially for young athletes. I think they just have to focus on training and eating, but um, generally it's been well-received. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what we're talking about, Charlie, is, is also relationships with food. And and the reason why I'm so passionate about getting Trent on here is to promote that healthy relationship with food. Food is fuel and athletes can't train without eating the correct amount of food. As we know, we have to lose weight. And what we're trying to get across here is to not go to extremes. And for the female athlete, some of those extremes might cause impaired menstrual function. So they might not have a regular period. For the male athlete, it could be that they have low testosterone and so their whole hormonal control is is offset. 
but it could also be something as simple as you're not sleeping correctly, you're not performing well, you're irritable, you're in a bad mood, you're taking your temper out on people around you that you would never normally speak that way to. And so a sports scientist, what we're trying to do is, is collect all this information like little detectives, piece it all together, and then coach our athlete and say, actually, come on, let's let's come back a few steps here and reset where we're going and how we're going to do it. So what would you describe as that balance and that healthy side of things? Could you maybe talk us through how to recognize what is healthy and that balance? Yeah, so there's a long checklist on all of this, and some of it is quite medical. I have a, a slide that I present to coaches and athletes on a checklist of which most of the stuff is, is stuff they understand and can actually assess themselves. And so one of the big indicators initially, um, although not necessarily, is irritability and fatigue. And you're going to have that as an endurance athlete. We don't want to avoid that necessarily. But if you're there and living there for weeks on end, that, that's got to be a red flag. Training consistency. And again, there's going to be times when you're pushing the system and you might be flat for a few weeks, but if you can't pull up and do a good workout every couple of weeks, that's another little check mark. And the more accumulating check marks you have here in this list, the more likely you are suffering um, or having some early indicators of REDS. Uh, constantly striving to be thin year round, a mindset that you just have to look this way to perform year round. All of a sudden changes in diet. So you might see this um, with teenagers who all of a sudden switch diets or start restricting or eating alone, uh, bizarre dietary intakes or, or, or their relationship with, with food. Uh, more than a 5% body mass change in a month or a couple of months can be an indicator, a large change. Um, for females who aren't on birth control, less than nine menstrual cycles in a year is a red flag. Two or more career stress fractures is a really big flag, and it predicts future stress fractures over and over again. High levels of fatigue, sleeping a lot, drop off in training. And then for males, um, poor sex drive. And a lot of times then you need blood work to see what their testosterone is, but um, that can be an early indicator as well. And everything I've mentioned there, a coach and an athlete or any of your listeners can somewhat qualitatively assess. Beyond that, then we look at blood work or we look at bone mineral density or we, we dig in with, with our physicians to dig up further. But in, in that list that I have there, is, um, it, it, it's quite approachable for, for all of us. And any one of those on their own is not, a, not reds. It's, it's an accumulating risk factor. So the more you're checking off, it might be then a signal, okay, I need to go see a physician, a sports med physician, and probably get some blood work and take a look under the hood a little, a little further. Something I wanted to ask you both is why is this the hottest topic at the moment? Well, we, we've been trying to answer that in the last two nights for four hours on Zoom as well. I, I think it relates back to, well, the female athlete triad, Charlie really kicked it all off. I think it's well accepted this females are more susceptible to these negative consequences. And then some of those researchers realized that some of these symptoms were also happening in males. And this was only back in 2014. So the term REDS was only born in 2014. And then like anything in science, we all jump on it and we all start to really get into the nitty gritty details of it. And I think with more awareness, then we've probably also started to see more cases actually in our practice and know what's going on. But at the same time, we also have to be careful that we're not over-diagnosing things like what Trent said and then some of these things are perfect symptoms of training hard. They're normal. And it's a tightrope. You walk on a tightrope as an elite athlete, really, I think. 
Yeah, I'll take a little bit of a different take. I, I think in the last five or six years, there's been a social awakening with a whole bunch of really good, but unfortunately very sad and negative outcomes of abuse in female sport. It's been in the New York Times. I know UK sport and UK cycling has dealt with it. There's, there's example after example after example. And in every single one of those examples, there seems to be this element of body shaming or underfueling or poor duty of care of female athletes. And I think it's so empowering now that so many females are becoming more aware of their own bodies, that we can talk openly about periods and menstrual cycles. It's not taboo. Uh, it's never been taboo in my world. And it is unbelievable the, the groundswell of females that are becoming aware of this topic and are passionate about this topic because it's their health. It's, it's, they, they feel like we are unique. And this is also to deal with the lack of females in sports science. And, and REDS is a topic that is more female-driven. There's this groundswell of energy regarding female research of, by extension, I think, REDS. And we're, ju we're just at that part. And I think there's a, the whole social context here. And, and then the second bit is all of us eat. All of us are experienced at eating. All of us have relationships with food that are unique to us. They're unique to our culture. They're representative of who our families are and where we came from. I'm of Dutch descent. And all you need to do is travel Europe and you, you, you'll figure that out pretty quickly. And I think that there's this intimate relationship we all have with food, which makes this topic extra intimate to us. Um, we're, we're not on here talking about the best tuck position and the best biomechanical tuck positions. I've never heard a podcast on that. Yes, there's a lot of science and research there and it's important. But when we talk about food and we talk about body image, we're talking about self-confidence. We're talking about how, how people perceive themselves emotionally and culturally. And, and so I, I think all of those things wrapped up right now in the context of the world that we're in is, is why this is a hot topic. And I know that's more like sociological and it's out of my realm, but that, that's kind of my thinking on it. I was going to pick up on that because everything you were talking about was very psychological, not necessarily nutritional. And you were talking about grooming within sport and how body shaming is used as a form of coercion and a lot of it is how you feel about yourself so how does that overlap with the work you're both doing then in terms of nutrition because there just seems to be they're not silos right the way that you feel about your body as an athlete um you know or as an everyday athlete is very much linked to the I think the behavior around your nutrition and food Right now in my practice, I'd say I'm working more with female athletes and male athletes. I am incredibly empathetic and humble in those relationships and building those relationships and creating safe relationships. Even how and where I'll do a body composition assessment is well thought out. It's, I'm not going to do it alone with an athlete, but it's going to be semi-private in a corner of the lab where someone else is away. So they, they don't, you know, I'm going to ask them every time I, I'm going to take a skin fold. Uh, I'm going to ask them if they want it blinded. We offer male or female options on skin folds now. We try to create a really safe space and a safe conversation. And once you get there, the athletes know that they have your that you have their back and that you're ready to journey with them. It, it's in, it's incredible. It's it's going to be a hard journey. There's going to be tears. There's going to be discomfort. There's going to be pain. But ultimately, they know that you're there for them and that you are really interested in duty of care, but also maximizing their performance. And that tightrope balance 
can be really challenging um, to, to get right for each individual athlete. And it's all about reading the play of the athlete in front of you and, and how much you're willing to maybe not, I, I don't use the word push them anymore, but um, support them to maximize performance. And, and it's tricky. It really is. Trent, how would you apply that to an everyday athlete that's going for a 10K or their own goals? I'm unaware of any athlete that has reached their pinnacle by a downloadable program. In other words, you can go online and there's lots of coaching programs. Uh, you can, there's, there's thousands of them and there's lots of coaches who sit at home. And you'll see, you know, different costs for different levels of programs. And, oh, we'll email you one for, you know, $30 a month. Or if you want one phone call a month, it's 100 And if you want, you're paying for human interaction to get the better programs. And it's also so generic, right? Exactly. And so, you know, periodization is a word we use for programming of training. We can use it in nutrition as well. I actually think we should redefine periodization and just talk about it as enhanced feedback loops. And ideally, those feedback loops are just what James was talking about. It's between the athlete and the coach or the practitioner and the athlete or, or all the people that are involved on the team. If you're super serious about trying to get the most out of you, you have to find a coach and or budget in your life to have that kind of a relationship where at least once a day there's a check-in. It, it could be a text. And ideally, that coach can see you physically training for periods of time um, that are extended um, or for certain sessions a week, as I truly believe that's how to maximize the most out of your athletes. There are some sports that are very metric driven, professional cycling. You got wattage meters, you got heart rate, you got this, you got that. You can download it all into software where, yes, the sports scientists can literally sit wherever in the world and play a video game and tweak the training. But even then, they got to get in the environment and look the athlete in the eyes. What, do they have bags under their eyes? How are they walking to breakfast in the morning? What do they look like? How are they, are they irritable? Nothing will trump that human interaction. And so, you know, extending on what we just talked about in terms of human relationships and trust and developing those relationships, you, you need to find someone uh, that will work for you. In terms, I remember going for a bike ride and um, for a cycle, a training session, and it was really early in the morning. And the coach who I sometimes went and cycled with, Dermot, he actually stopped me. And he was like, what's wrong with you? And I was so tired. And we only got 45 minutes into a, I think it was a four hour session. And I just couldn't cycle. And and I probably would have pushed on um, out of that grit determination, but where it actually was bad, would have been bad for me. Because I think that's definitely a habit of mine, whereas he made me stop. Because I just couldn't, I was just too tired. Yeah, I would have definitely done something different if I hadn't have gone cycling with him, which would have been detrimental to me. Okay, what's um? You mentioned it. I've written a note. Hang on, periodized nutrition. Periodized nutrition, I think, is quite simple to explain. It's in the simplistic of terms. Charlie is, if you have a hard training session tomorrow, then you eat more today to get ready for that session tomorrow. You have a bigger breakfast, you fuel more on the bike, you fuel well after to recover. And then if your training session the next day isn't as long or isn't as hard, then you don't need as much food to get ready for that session. And what you've just asked there is a great question in relation to this whole topic of reds. Because actually I think that's the way that you combat it, is you fuel for the work required. Some days are big, so fuel well. Some days aren't so big, so you don't need to fuel as well. 
the mistakes that athletes make, both elite and amateurs, is they eat the same every day. And yet your training's not the same every day. So why should you eat the same food every day? Yeah, I think I do. So what type of daily energy deficits are safe and sustainable? Well, every, every sport's different, isn't it? I mean, let's be a realist here. Every sport's different. Every sport has different calorie expenditures. So a professional football player, for instance, we published a study on the Liverpool first team players a few years ago. Those guys are expending around three and a half thousand calories per day. A Tour de France cyclist could be expending between 5,000 and 8,000 calories per day. A professional rugby player, because they're much bigger, they could be expending five, 6,000 daily. And so the amount of calories that we recommend that you build up in a deficit really depends on the sport that you're in. With Trent and his wife, I'm sure you'll, you'll get into this, his approach was to be quite conservative, 300 calorie deficits per day. In the combat athlete, the professional boxer that has to lose 15 kilograms in 10 weeks to make a fight, you ain't going to make weight for that fight on a 300 calorie deficit per day. You've got to be much more extreme. Because Trent, I've heard you say about making it not extreme. Yeah. And so again, it's within those moderating contextual factors that I highlighted at the start of the sport and, and what needs to happen. Are they male or female? What age are they? How much time do you have before the peak competition? And then obviously some sports require a weigh-in and either you weigh in or you don't. And then even the weigh-in permutations, some of the combat sports you weigh in the day before, well, in lightweight rowing, it's two hours before. So the how much you're willing to sweat out as a last phase is very different when you got a day to recover versus two hours. And so all those things come into it. But as James said earlier, generally speaking, periodizing energy deficits every other day or every few days rather than just constant are, are ways that we've seen can be much healthier for prevention of reds. If you're an athlete with a long runway and you're just getting back into shape and um, you have a few years, then plugging away where a few times a week you're eating a little bit less is quite an effective initial intervention because you don't need to be as extreme. You, you're just getting back into shape and you're looking to do a race in a year or two from now. Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, I think it's so hard, Charlie, to relate this to the everyday person in terms of giving them a calorie recommendation because it all depends on your sex to start with, what sport you're doing, your baseline body weight and so on. So I get, we're probably reluctant to give figures. What I would say is that if you see someone who's losing more than one kilo a week, they're probably underfueling. Any weight loss greater than that is probably too extreme. So I think as a, as a general, simple rule of thumb for the listeners today, if your numbers in the scales are going down more than that, you probably want to dial it back a little bit. Yeah, I was going to actually ask about figures. So Trent, I suppose it's up to you whether you want to, how you want to answer this, because I think we often talk on the masses of input and output, and it's as simple as that. So you output the calories and you input the calories and that's the equation. But then we don't often think about the calories we need just to stay alive, just to do our day to day, just for our organs to work, just even to sit on the sofa. I've heard you give an equation of weight and per calorie per K. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, I can try it. And to be honest, it is as simple as calories in, calories out. But the inputs into those two sides of the equation are are pretty complex and probably a lot more nuanced than a lot of us realize. And so calories in is energy intake. It's it's the food that you eat. 
and the calories out or total daily energy expenditure is, is multifactorial because it includes basal metabolic rate. So the amount of energy just to keep you alive sitting on the couch or sleeping. And we measure that through resting metabolic rate on, uh, with a metabolic cart. There's the amount of calories you expend with exercise. There's the, we call it the dietary induced thermogenesis. So that's the amount of calories it costs to process food. And then finally, there's another uh, aspect to it that we call um, NEAT or non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's things like doing laundry or walking to the grocery store or activities of daily living. So measuring all four of those things gets really tricky and quite challenging. But all four of them contribute to your total daily energy expenditure. And so within REDS, we've gone away from total energy in, energy out to a concept called energy availability. And energy availability is energy intake minus just your exercise energy expenditure. And therefore, it's the energy left over for basal metabolic rate and for you to live your life and for your organs to have their fuel and, 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 and everything else. Energy available or energy left over. And so if you, yeah, if you eat 3,000 calories a day and your exercise energy expenditure is 1,000, you have 2,000 calories left over for your body to function normally. And through very well-controlled laboratory studies in females only, uh, recreational females, we know that you need about 45 calories per kilogram fat-free mass, which is mainly your muscle mass per day, to be an optimal energy availability. Males are probably lower. Uh, we don't know exactly where, where they lie. Um, that said, that is the underlying concept to what we're talking about, but is impressively difficult for even professionals to accurately assess because even measuring energy intake or dietary intake is, is fraught with issues. Uh, measuring exercise energy expenditure is, is tricky. Yes, you can get estimates from your SRM or from your heart rate or little equations where you put your body weight in, but they can be out as much as three or 300 to 600 calories a day as well. And so I would focus on pushing people back to the conversation we had earlier where you look at the indicators, the things that we talked about, like irritability and mood and menstrual cycle status and stress fractures, um, rather than at home trying to measure energy availability. I agree with James, though. We, you know, we need to be more aware of the food we're consuming and what, how many calories are on a plate or carbs. It's good to have that awareness, and that's a skill to learn. But trying to measure this out for the average person is um, incredibly challenging because it's, it's fraught with a lot of... Um, confounding factors and errors. So Trent, what's the biggest advice you give to an everyday exerciser? Sort of question, sorry. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm going to steal what James said earlier. And if you, I should, I'm going to give James a pause here to think. I, I see him holding his brain here. Just because it's so complex. I would just say becoming more aware of the type of training you're doing day to day and therefore the amount of food you need on the plate and specifically carbohydrates you need on the plate need to adapt and change. And they may need to adapt day to day, but also if you have an agreement with your family to have 16 weeks to get ready for an Ironman, your food intake better change. It has to change, you know? And so maybe over that 16 weeks, it's, you're just more aware and conscious of, of these symptoms and of, um, you know, making appropriate increases in, in, in your, in your food on your plate. That's trying to be basic here is just more, more around awareness. So I know 
listeners out there, you're listening to us, but James has now stopped holding his brain. So, <laughs> James. <laughs> I would go super simple, Charlie. And this is a phrase that I've used a lot in the sports science community in the last few years, which is simply fuel for the work required. And that says, adjust your food intake depending what you're doing today, tomorrow, and the next day. Always work in two to three day blocks and simply fuel for the work required. And if you live by that mantra, I think you'll give yourself the best chance of enjoying exercise. That's why we exercise. We enjoy it. Enjoying it first and foremost, and hopefully getting some performance benefit as well. James, it's simple, but I think it's really important. But thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a great uh, conversation and I had a lot of fun today. James, I really found it so interesting listening to Trent and it really made me think about my own eating patterns, to be honest, especially going into competition because I think I definitely don't fuel enough or eat enough in any way. And if you're trying to do that with like weight management or lose a bit of weight, I think there's a fine line between like making sure you eat enough and it can get quite dangerous. And I think those behavior patterns can be as well. It made me think back to when I was a junior athlete, which was a long time ago, and I used to train so much and I was obsessed with it. And, and I'd almost like withhold food and not eat enough for the amount that I was training. Sometimes I wouldn't even eat a biscuit because I thought it might hinder my performance. And it made me think a lot about the female body because of what Trent was saying about focusing on female athletes and not wanting to harm your body. I don't know. It just, do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's great for you to share that, Charlie, because the whole point of this podcast is, of course, to prompt some reflection in the listeners, whether you're an elite athlete an amateur athlete or someone who just goes to the gym several times per week. We want to try and share stories from athletes and share stories and, and science from world-leading sports scientists to really try and help people change their own practice. So if we've changed your practice, then <laughs> I think it's been a worthwhile episode already. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes though, you know, like I feel like I know it, I just don't always implement it because I think sometimes when, especially with very competitive people, you get really obsessed, I think, with with the training, the competition and, and pushing yourself all the time and not realizing how much your food intake is, your, your nutrition, the types of things you're eating and also the rest days. So I know that this is a, a, a topic that you're really passionate about. And when we first start, started talking about this episode, you really wanted to start here. Um, I know we've been talking about reds and it's quite sciencey, and I think so many people can relate to that balance with weight loss though. So what's the most important thing we can take away? Well, I guess what I've really tried to get across in this episode, Charlie, is that most people are familiar with the concept of weight loss. It's a simple equation of calories in versus calories out. But in the real world, what tends to happen is people go to extremes. Now we've heard from Geraint, one of the world's best endurance athletes himself, and he's also shared some stories about going to extremes. And what I would like our listeners to take away is to try and not push themselves into that consistent calorie deficit day by day, because that's when bad things can happen. But rather is change what you eat, depending on what your training session looks like. And so that concept of fueling for the hard days and then reducing your energy intake for the easier days is a much more sensible way to go about your weight loss goals as opposed to the traditional approach of let's restrict our calories consistently day by day. Yeah, I think that's what I learned the most as well, making sure that I feel better on the days that I'm training really hard rather than just doing it across every day. James, 
we did it. I know it was long, but we got through the first episode. How do you feel? Well, I think that was a great episode to start, Charlie. It was a bumper episode, so we had three guests. Um, but I think every guest brought something different, didn't they? they? They brought something from their own perspective around this whole topic of weight management and REDS. Um, so I'm really glad with that episode. And I think there's going to be a lot that our listeners can take away from, from all of those guests. Yeah, most definitely. I can't wait for the coming weeks. And we have got a couple of weeks now to prepare for the next episode. I promise it won't be quite as long as this one, but we wanted to really do a bumper one, as James said, and pack everything in. We've got some amazing guests lined up for the next few episodes, haven't we? Yes. Our next episode will also feature along the weight loss theme. And I want to get into some specifics of perhaps some of the nutritional tips that you should be doing when you're trying to lose weight, especially around maintaining muscle mass. Um, I don't know if we should share, Charlie, who our next guest is. Can we can we let the cat out of the bag yet? Yeah, go on then. I'll let you do okay. it because then I won't get told off. <laughs> well, our, our next guest is, I'm very pleased to say, is also from Belfast, like myself. He's a world champion boxer, two-weight world champion, and it's none other than Carl Frampton. Um, and then we will also have Professor Stuart Phillips, who's an expert in protein metabolism, especially for helping to lose weight in athletes. So I think next episode... We'll follow on great from this episode. And again, we'll hopefully have some practical insights from athletes and scientists that our listeners can take away. Yeah, Carl's such a great guy as well. And he'll have such a fantastic insight because he's currently on a training camp at the moment. Well, we're really looking forward to it, James. It's certainly a topic that I think will help a lot of people. Protein consumption has been a big topic in fitness. So it'd be good to set the record straight because I think there's a lot of confusion around it. Thanks so much for listening. So James and I will be back with the next episode on Tuesday, the 30th of March. Pop it in your diary. But if you enjoyed this episode, follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review if you listened on Apple Podcasts. We'd absolutely love to hear what you think. <laughs>